you have your Bibles, uh, have them uh, close by. We're going to cover a lot of different passages. Of course, our reference point will start with Matthew, as we did last week. uh, And we have many, many weeks before that. But we started last week into the series through this month of December called God With Us. Talking about the reality of what Christmas speaks to you and I is that the God of the universe wanted to, once and for all, not only send his son to die on the cross for our sin and to rise from the dead to conquer death, obviously that's the pinnacle of why he came, but also to demonstrate to you and I that God's greatest desire is to be with us. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Matthew writes of a prophecy that Isaiah gave years before that when Jesus came, one of the names given to him would be the name Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. And so if you're here last week, we talked about how that is some, for some of us, that is a shift. The concept of God's desire to be with us sometimes is hard for us to really embrace, hard for us to to really get our, our minds around. And so we talked about how God relates to us and how he created us. Last week we talked about in the Garden of Eden, he created us to be with him. That's why, how we're designed. But things happen that separate us from him, and that's why Jesus' coming allows us to be, in a sense, reunited through Jesus' death on the cross back to God. Now, this week what we're going to take time to do is that, that God creates this beautiful context of relationship for us to be with him. And so you've probably heard the term or heard the phrase before, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's almost becomes cliche, and, and we lose the, the meaning of that. But, but you and I, if we really are going to understand that, that that's what God's desires. God wants a relationship with each human being. And it's a great thing, but you and I have a tendency to take what God intended, what God created for us in relationship, and we change it, and we tweak it, and we create our own context of how we think we're supposed to relate to God. I want to talk about that today. Because what happens, and you and I will discover, when we go down this road and we kind of create our own context for a relationship, many times what ends up happening is God is not the end, but he becomes a means to our end. And if we are really honest, what ends up happening is that we really don't desire God. We desire what God can provide for us or what God can give to us. I had a friend in middle school, his name was Byron, and the first week that Byron showed up to school, it was huge news. He was the most popular kid in the school the moment he stepped his foot on campus. And the reason why is he was on TV, he was on a TV show that was on, it was airing right when he was coming to school, and it was, it was this great show that I know everybody remembers called Father Murphy. Anybody ever remember that show? Anybody remember Little House on the Prairie? It was a spinoff from Little House on the Prairie. So you're kind of feeling like, right, really? You were in middle school? That shows how old I am, okay? Some of you are thinking, Father Murphy, Little House of Prairie, what is that? But so he was on that show. He was, it, that, that show was about a, a guy who, who took in orphans, and he was one of the orphans on the show. And so that was kind of his claim to fame. So when he got to school, everybody knew who Byron was. And so immediately, of course, he was a pretty good-looking kid, so all the girls are kind of clamming around him. All the guys thought he was really cool. They all wanted to be like him. And and I got to know Byron because he played the trumpet, and I played the trumpet, so he would sit next to me in orchestra, and so every morning we would get to talk just a little bit. And when he first got to school, it was like this frenzy, and he was excited to be there. But then as the days and the weeks kind of went on, I, I noticed there was a total change in his attitude. In fact, he seemed not happy to be at school. He seemed depressed, and he didn't seem like he really wanted to be there. And I, we started talking, and I said, Byron, what, what is going on? You you seem kind of different than when I first met you. And I said, you don't seem very happy. And he said, yeah. He goes, you know, he said, for me, he said, it was great to come to this school at first. He said, but, but, but everybody wants to, says they want to be my friend, but they really don't want to be my friend. I said, what do you mean? He said, they just want to be my friend because I'm on a TV show. 
He said that I, I know that I'm popular just because I'm on TV, but nobody really, really wants to know. And I watched over the school year. He started out with all these friends. Everybody knew Byron, and by the end of the school year, he had narrowed down his friends to like two people. There's only two people he would relate to. And I could tell from him those were the only two people that just valued him for who he is and not because of what he did. And I think sometimes you and I do that in our context of a relationship with God. That we get excited and we, we, want, we want God, but what we really want is we want what God represents or what God gives us and He becomes a means to our end. And sometimes we miss out on the concept that God wants us and His greatest desire is to be with us. And so this morning, I want to take some time to talk about what this looks like for you and I. In fact, I want to talk about four different contexts that actually we can find examples of in Scripture that people embraced as their context of relationship with God, which missed the biggest context, which is God's desire to be with us. So as we go through these this morning, you may find yourself in one or two of these, and God may be wanting you to step out of those back into the reality that God's desire is truly relationship. He truly wants to be with us and for us to be with him. The first thing that you and I create of our own context relationship is that instead of embracing a life with God, we embrace a life under God. So what that means is that you and I treat God, he's this kind of governing body that oversees all things, and because of that, our relationship to him is more like a simple cause and effect. In other words, I do this, therefore God does this. And so what we do is we end up living out our lives in ways to try to obligate God to bless us. So we do certain things, jumping through what we think are the religious hoops that God has set up for us, knowing that if we do that, then God somehow is obligated to make sure that he comes through on his end of the deal. And so instead of being a relationship, it becomes more like almost a contract. If I fulfill my side of the deal, then God has to come through with his side of the deal. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't bless us, but if you and I are purely motivated in life to do things because we think that God will bless us, then we've missed the point of who God is. Blessing is the byproduct, not the focus. Giving's a perfect example. When we tithe, so many times people say, well, you need to tithe because God will bless you. If you and I give because we think the reason we give is because God will bless us, then we've missed it. The reason we give is because of God. Because it's about him. It's about giving our heart and our attention and our money and everything to him. But if you and I, because what happens is if, if, if you and I give and then God somehow doesn't come through, what happens? Then we stop being obedient to follow him in all of the areas of our life. There's, there's patterns of this uh, you and I can see in scripture, but I think uh, uh, more of a, uh, a recent illustration, it's more of like the way that you and I would see the way that Charlie related to Willy Wonka and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know, he comes to the factory and he has this experience. And, and what is the whole point of going to the chocolate factory? What is the golden ticket worth? Anybody remember? A lifetime supply of chocolate. So the whole point of going to the chocolate factory, and you remember at the end of the movie, his grandfather comes in and Willy Wonka says, no, you're not getting it because you messed up in one point. And his, his grandfather gets angry. Why? Because in their mindset, it was what? I jump through the hoops that Willy Wonka creates. And as long as I get through the majority of them and better than everybody else in the process, then now they, Willy is obviously obligated to give me the lifetime supply of chocolate. Do you and I think that we ever do that to God? We do. We do. In fact, listen in Mark chapter 10, Jesus had an encounter with somebody that we are familiar with. We call him the rich young ruler who had this same mindset. 
he had the, the cause and effect idea of God, and that if I do this, then God has to do this. And that's why in verse 17 of Mark 10, it says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, and he fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What was he saying to Jesus? What hoop do I have to jump through so that you're obligated to give me eternal life? That's what he was asking to Jesus. And when he asked Jesus that, it, obviously the conversation at first kind of went the way that he wanted it to. Jesus lists some of the, law, the areas of the law, and he's like, yeah, I got that, jump through that hoop, I got it. But then Jesus gets to the core of the issue for him, and that was his wealth. His wealth had become his God. And the result is that Jesus it says this in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. The last four words of this verse are the key to everything. It says, then Jesus, or this, Jesus says this, then come, follow me. What did Jesus want? Did Jesus want his money? No. He wanted him. He said, by the way, get rid of the God that's getting in the way of you and I. Get rid of the barrier that you've placed between you and me, and then come follow me and be in relationship with me. That's what Jesus was saying to him. That's what Jesus desired. But in his mind, he's like, just give me one more hoop to jump through because I only I know I just need to add just a little bit something and then I know I'll be fully justified and I'll jump through all the hoops and then you're obligated to give me eternal life. See, there's a challenge with that thinking. If you and I think that's the way that God works, then all of our life will be spent jumping through the hoops that you and I think God's created, but we're the, we're the ones that have created them. And we come up with this criteria that somehow at the end of all things, now God is obligated to allow me into heaven. Why? Because I did X, Y, Z, I did ABC, I did whatever I was supposed to do, and now God has to let me in. See, that mentality, Jesus knew that mentality exists. That's why in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, here's the tragedy of a life lived under God. Verse 21, Matthew 7, says, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What were they saying? I jumped through the prophecy hoop. I jumped through casting out demon hoop. I jumped through the miraculous hoop. I jumped through, I did all the things that, that a Christian's supposed to do. And now... I get to go in. And what does Jesus say? I never knew you. You were never with me. You jumped through all the hoops that you created for yourself. It's kind of like when you're a kid in, in, in Sunday school, if you remember, you know, you do the memory verse, and when someone does the memory verse, there's a, your name's up on a chart, and on that day, if you do the memory verse right, what do you get? A star. That means what? You did it. You jumped through the hoop. And so the motivation is, is the motivation as a kid to memorize the verse so it internally gets a hold of you and changes your life? No. What is it about? It's about the star. Sometimes we never grow up. We don't. Sometimes that's the way we treat God the older we get, that, you know, I'm jumping through the hoop, I'm going to get the star, because you're obligated. Because I've done this, you have to do this for me. There's a second thing. Second context you and I create that you, might, you and I might find ourselves in this morning, and that is instead of a life with God, we embrace a life over God. What I mean by that is that we find our way into principles and formulas that we think are proven, therefore we follow them all the time. In other words, instead of being in a relationship that is dynamic, that can be changing, that can be growing and develop, you and I default to what worked last time. 
What formula can I plug in here so that I do this and then I get the desired outcome every single time? What principles, in fact, some people think there's principles that govern the universe that even God himself is subject to. God is God. Everything is subject to him. But we get it backwards. And so we work out with formulas and concepts, and so we kind of think that if everything's done a certain way, then this is the outcome not realizing that God is not about repeating the same scenario over and over for this desired outcome. That's why I read through the Gospels. You will find it hard to find. Jesus doesn't heal people the same way twice. It's always slightly different, like spitting in mud and wiping it on a guy's face. Now, if somebody did that today, say, well, that's the way that Jesus did it. No, it's not about the mud. It's about the miracle, and it's about the miracle worker. Sometimes we miss that. We, we follow the formula that we think is there. And when we follow the formula, we miss that. You've got to follow the protocol and do it just right. I had a, we had some friends in Oregon, and, and Kim and I had this really funny conversation with them one time. He's a police officer who's been so for a long time, and she was a, a part of the church staff for a while. And, and so we were having this conversation, and she said, you know, this is when we first moved to Oregon. In Oregon, they have OSP, which is Oregon State Police. You know, we have California Highway Patrol. They have OSP. And so she was explaining to us, you know, when you're out on the highway, she goes, here's, just so you know, this is the way it works. I'm like, okay, how does it work in Oregon? She said, if an OSP, if a, if a, a um, state trooper pulls you over for whatever you're doing on the highway, and when he gets out of his car and walks up to your car, if he doesn't have his hat on, he can't give you a ticket. I'm like, I'm looking at her like, oh, come on. You're just playing a joke on me. And she's looking, she goes, no, that's the way it is. She goes, that's the law. I said, what do you mean that's the law? He has to wear a hat? Now, as we're having this conversation, her husband, who's been a police officer his entire life, I mean, since, since she's known him, they've been, he's been a police officer, he's laughing. And I'm thinking, oh, this is a joke. And he taps her on the shoulder, and she, he looks at her, and he says, are you serious? She goes, yeah. That's what somebody told me, that as long as, if he doesn't have his hat on, you can't get a ticket. And he just bursts out laughing. He goes, that is so not true. He said, in fact, he said, it doesn't matter if a man is naked. He can still write you a ticket. doesn't matter what he's wearing. And Mer, she was like shocked. See, because in her mind, it's like, no, here's the protocol. If I follow this, and if his, he doesn't have his hat on, he doesn't follow it, then it doesn't happen. How silly it would have been if I waited to get pulled over and said, hey, you don't have your hat on. He probably would have given, I'm giving you a ticket for speeding and stupidity on top of that. So, But how many times do we follow protocol because we think that's the way it's supposed to be? See, there's people who did that in Scripture, too. Moses did it. In Exodus chapter 17, there's a story where God tells Moses to strike a rock so water comes out so God will provide water for his people. Then if you go a few chapters later to Exodus chapter 20, you have a similar scenario unfolding. But in this scenario, God says to Moses, says, don't strike the rock, speak to the rock, and then water will come forth. What happens... Look at verse, uh, I don't know if it'd be on the screens, but in verse 9 through uh, verse 12 of Numbers, chapter 20, it says, So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must you bring bring water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm, struck the rock twice with the staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me, enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. You will not bring this community into the land I give them. That's pretty harsh. Why would God do that? Now, there's a lot of dynamics going there. Moses is obviously frustrated with the people, and he's reacting out of frustration. But what was his default? His default was to do it the way it was done before. But God said, no, don't strike it. Speak. 
How many times in, in our lives do you and I default out of fear to some kind of regiment or some kind of process or some kind of formula or some kind of principle that if I do this, then somehow this is going to happen. It's kind of like with our devotions. We can become very religious in spending time with God. We can have a reading plan that becomes very legalistic and checking off a box, and and we can do things exactly the same way, and before we know it, there's no relationship left. All it is is this shell of religion where there's no life in it because we've, we've bought into this concept that really, if we're honest, what we've become is we've become superstitious. See, superstition says I need to repeat the same thing over and over again so that something good happens or something bad doesn't happen. That's what superstition is. And as sometimes as Christians, we become superstitious. We repeat things because we don't want any bad things to happen to us or we want something good to happen to us. And those creep into our lives, and we don't even know what we're doing is based on some superstition that somebody else came up with, but we keep doing it thinking that we're going to get this result. Professional athletes are the most superstitious people you will ever meet. I mean, football players, basketball players, baseball players, they all have certain things that they do and they don't do. Like, like when a pitcher steps off the mound and he's coming to the dugout after an inning, watch most of them, they won't step on the foul line. They'll step over it. Why? Because it's bad luck. Don't want to do that. Or, you know, like wearing the same underwear all season long because you had a good game. Or like the Boston Red Sox two years ago, none of them shaved all year long and they won the World Series. Like, they have all these things. And, and there's something in, in modern day in the NBA right now that's true that many people don't know that part of the genesis of it came out of a superstition. So if you watch an NBA game, watch any basketball game now, but NBA as well, the, the shorts are not long, no longer as short as they used to be. Anybody notice that over time? Shorts have become, they used to be here, and now they're like here, like right above the ankle, like they're baggy and baggier. Now, there's a lot of different reasons, style and things like that, but one of the reasons the, the shorts in the NBA started to grow over time was because Michael Jordan had a superstition. See, Michael Jordan was going through a slump, and so to spark himself out of the slump, he went and got his original University of North Carolina shorts, the ones he wore in college. And he wore them under his Chicago Bull shorts. And he had a good game. So guess what he started doing? Every single game, he'd wear his North Carolina shorts and he'd put his Bull shorts. The problem was, is they were almost the same size. So to make sure that no one could see the North Carolina shorts, he had shorts made a little bit longer. And then before you know it, somebody else picked up about it and they made shorts a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And before you know it, now everybody's walking around and playing in the NBA with long shorts, and most people have no idea where it came from. It was because Michael Jordan thought he was a better basketball player with longer shorts and another pair of shorts underneath. How much of our Christian life is based on superstition and not based on the relationship that God has for us? That we've picked up from our own lives or from somebody else's life. Oh, they did it this way, therefore if I just do it this way, then I'll get the desired outcome. See, you and I miss it because that that is a life that you and I don't want to live. It's a life that's empty and hollow and there's no connection with God. Third thing, the third context of relationship that you and I create instead of a life with God is that we embrace a life from God. In other words, what you and I have a tendency to do is that instead of God being the end, God becomes the means to our end. In other words, our desire for Him is is really a desire for the things that he represents or the things that he gives us. And because of that, what happens is that we begin to treat him not like God as the end. We begin to treat him more like a divine genie. 
that gives us all the wishes that we want, and he gives us what we want. And because of that, we love God as long as God gives us what we want. But then we become disappointed with God when he doesn't come through with one of our requests. Now, is, does that mean that we can't make requests? No, it's, it's biblical for us to pray and to ask. But when you and I ask only for our own benefit and ask for what we want and desire things that maybe God is working differently and we don't ask for God, we just ask what he can give us, then we kind of walk down that road. See, because what we do to God is we superimpose onto him who we are and what our desires are. And instead of praying according to God's will, we want God to work out according to our will. And in a sense, it's like creating God in our own image. There's a college professor that every year in his classes, he gives, he starts off with two quizzes. The first one is 24 questions and they're meant to shape the student to help them answer the question for themselves, what is Jesus like? So he's, he's geared these questions in such a way that the, at the end of those 24 questions, each of those students comes away with a definition of who Jesus is to them. Then he also accompanies that with a slightly altered personality test for themselves to take about themselves. And he said over time, between 80 and 90%, when he compares the two, it's amazing how much Jesus looks like the personality profile they just took. That their understanding of who Jesus is has more to do with who they are than who Jesus is. See, somebody said it once that if God has made us in his own image, we have returned him the favor. We have created him in our image. And that's what we do many times when we're living this, this life from God. It's, it's what can I get from God? It's, it's the prodigal son when, when he eventually leaves home and he takes a third of his dad's wealth to go and do what he wants to do. Did he want his dad? Did he want relationship with his dad? No, he wanted his dad's money. And as you know the story, he takes off and he blows all his money in a short amount of time. And then when he comes back, how does his father respond? Oh, you're going to pay back every dime of my money that you stole and you spent. Does he say that? No, what does he do? He throws a party. And he says what's lost is now found. Why would his dad throw a party? Because his dad wasn't interested in the money. His dad was interested in his son. His dad was interested in relationship. So the money didn't matter to him, even though he, he blew his dad's, a third of his dad's wealth. But his son was gone, out of relationship, separated from him, isolated. But now he was home, and that's why there was a party. Because now he was, what, with his father again. And that's the thing that you and I have a tendency to miss, is that we have this idea that God is good as long as God gives me what I want, but God is bad when he doesn't give me what I want. It's also, it's repeated in the encounters that Jesus had in John chapter 6, verses 27 and 20, 26, 27. You remember Jesus feeds the 5,000, which we know is probably closer to fifteen or 20,000. He takes, what, just a few loaves and some fish, and he multiplies it and does this miraculous thing, and then he feeds them. And you think, wow, anybody who would see that would immediately fall on their knees and turn to Jesus. But as you go on in verse 26 after that, so Jesus says, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, they followed him after this. Not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. What was happening? Now, just think about this. What if you and I were there that day? Wouldn't you and I be wowed by this amazing, like, multiplication of food and, and feeding all these thousands of people? They just were impressed with the fact that they got a free meal. And so they followed Jesus because they wanted more food. 
They didn't necessarily want the one who created it. They didn't want Jesus. And I think you and I have to be very careful because many times we treat God that way. In fact, we, we've made somebody very popular every year at this time who is probably more of an accurate representation of what our perception of God is than who God really is. You all know him. He's jolly. He wears a red suit. He shows up at the mall every year, right? We take our kids and they sit on his lap and, and what do they ask? They ask for what they want for Christmas. They tell Santa and if Santa's good, what does he do? He gets them what they want. Or if they're good and they jump through the hoops, then Santa is what? Obligated to give them what they ask for. Now I'm not saying that Santa is, is Satan incarnate and he's evil, okay? But I think there's a part of our culture that would rather have Santa be God than God be God. And you and I have to be careful if that's the context that we set up, that you and I set ourselves up for absolute disappointment because we put God in a box and we tell him, this is the way you have to act. This is the way you have to respond. And if you don't jump through my hoop, then you're not really God. Remember a conversation with a a young man who was upset at God. In fact, it was funny. He was upset at a God that he no longer believed existed. But the reason he was mad is he said, listen, he said, I've tried God. I've tried Jesus. I've tried prayer. I prayed for a long time that my parents wouldn't get a divorce, but they went ahead and got a divorce. And because of that, I don't believe that a God that would not answer my prayer could possibly exist. Why would he have that response? Because in his mind, God was nothing more than a genie to him. Now, the pain of the divorce, that's on his parents. That's not on God. And how many times in our life are we saying, okay, God, I want you to do this, and I want you to do this, and if he doesn't do that, you and I, again, we're saying, God, live by my will, not by your will. And we miss it. And then there's a final thing, and and trust me, it gets a little bit better here, but I know this is hard, but some of us, we find ourselves, this is where we're living. This is the context that we've created for how we relate to God. The final thing, the final context that we create in relating to God is instead of with him, we embrace a life for him. And that means that we're always living in this constant tension of having to do something to ongoingly establish and to maintain our value or our significance before him. That our life is just constantly tensioned because we feel like I've got to be good enough for God. And so therefore I'm going to live a life for God. Doesn't that sound noble? I'm living for Jesus. That's great. But are you living for Jesus to earn his favor? Or are you living for him because you've surrendered your life to him and you live with him and the result is you want to live for him? There's a big difference. When we're, our goal is to try to impress him, our goal is try to be good enough, our goal is to try to do all the religious duties to make sure that we're justified before God, that we do that. In fact, there's somebody in the New Testament who lived that out probably better than anybody else before him and after him. His name's Paul. Paul was as religious as you could get. He was as close to perfection as the Jewish culture had. Paul was it. He had done everything he was supposed to do as a, as a Jewish boy and a Jewish man and a Jewish leader. And because of that, he fulfilled everything that he's supposed to do. And he realized when he encountered Jesus that all he was doing was living a life for God, but he never really knew God until he met Jesus. Listen to Paul's words. This is in a paraphrase called The Message. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, listen to the journey of Paul as he kind of lays out his history for you and I. He says, you know my pedigree, a legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, 
a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church, a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. The very credentials these people are waving around are something special. I'm tearing, up, tearing them up and throwing them out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung. That's what the translation says. I've dumped it all into the trash so that I can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave all that inferior stuff up so that I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If, that was, if there was anything, any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. What did Paul go through? He went through this amazing revelation that his life lived for God was empty because it had no life in it. It had no relationship. He lived for God and had no connection to God. You and I could live the best moral, pure life. We can look like the best Christian ever. We can do more for God than anybody else of all of human history and at some point miss the fact that we never knew him. Miss the fact that he wanted a relationship and all we gave him was duty. And if you and I miss that, then we miss the joy of what it is to truly know Jesus. Because what Jesus is concerned with, he's not concerned with us jumping through hoops. He's not concerned with our money. He's not concerned with all the things you and I think are most important. What he wants is most important is us. That's why Jesus died He didn't die for our talent or for our good behavior or for morality. He died for us so that he could transform our souls, so that our lives look different, not because we're performing, but because we're living out of love, because we are living with him in a relationship. Now I'm going to do something that I I don't often do, but I I felt it was extremely important this morning um, to, to read something to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but to read a book to you that I believe demonstrates... What, what I think God is communicating to you and I about his desire for you and I. In fact, it's a children's book, and it's written by Max Lucado, and it's called Just the Way You Are. In fact, it was what, we used to read it to our kids when they were younger. In fact, it's Courtney's favorite book when she was growing up. This is the book I, I read to her numerous times. And I want to just take a few moments to read in conclusion this morning to you because I want you to hear... Now, this is not scripture. This is Max Lucado's fictitious. It's a fictional concept of the way God relates to us and what I think God wants us to understand. So I'm going to ask you to do a couple simple things. Just if you have your your Bible or your phone or whatever in front of you, just set it aside. I just want you to listen to the words, and I want you to put yourself in the story about what God wants you to understand about his love and his desire for you and I this morning. So you don't have distractions. Just listen to this story. So it begins that... A long time ago in a land much like your own, there was a village. And in the village lived five orphans. A lonely family of fatherless children they had band together against the cold. One day the king learned of their misfortune and decided to adopt them. 
He announced that he would be their father and he would come for them soon. When the children learned that they had a new father and that their father was the king and that the king was coming to visit, they went wild with excitement. When the people of the village learned that the children had a father and that their father was the king and that the king was coming to the village, they were excited as well. They went out to see the children and told them what to do. You need to impress the king, they explained. Only those with great gifts to give will be allowed to live in the castle. The people didn't know the king. They just thought all kings wanted to be impressed. So the children began preparing gifts to offer the king. They worked long and hard to be sure the king would approve. One of the children who knew how to carve decided to give the king a wonderful work of wooden art. He set his knife against the soft bark of the elm and whittled. The small blocks of wood came alive with the eyes of a sparrow or the nose of a horse. His sister decided to present the king with a painting that captured the beauty of the heavens, a painting worthy to hang in his castle. Another sister chose music as her way to impress the king. For long hours, she practiced with her voice and mandolin. Village people would stop at her window and listen as her music took wings and soared. Yet another child set out to turn the king's head with his wisdom. Late hours would find his candle lit and his books open. Geography, math, chemistry. The breadth of his study was matched only by the depth of his desire. Surely a king would appreciate all his knowledge. But there was one sister who had nothing to offer. Her hand was clumsy with the knife, her fingers stiff with the brush. And when the little girl opened her mouth to sing, the sound was hoarse. She wasn't much of a reader. She believed she had no talent, and so she believed she had no gift. All she had to offer was her heart, for her heart was good. She spent her time at the city gates watching people come and go. She would earn pennies to buy food for her brothers and sisters by grooming people's horses or feeding their animals. She was a simple, stable girl. But she had a good heart. She, has the beg- she knew the beggars by name. She took time to pet each dog. She welcomed home the travelers and greeted the strangers. How was your journey, she would ask. Tell me what you learned on your visit. How was your husband? Do you enjoy your new work? She was full of questions for people because her heart was big and she cared about people. They were all the same to her, the beggars and the rich. She cared for all of them just the way they were. But since the little girl thought she had no talent and no gift, she was afraid the king would be disappointed. She remembered the villager's advice and set her mind about the task of making a gift for the king. She took a small knife and went to her brother, the carver. Could you teach me to carve, she asked. Sorry, the young craftsman responded without looking up. I've much work to do. I haven't time for you. The king is coming, you know. The girl put away her knife and picked up a brush. She went to her sister, the artist. She found her on a hill painting a sunset on a canvas. You paint so beautifully, said the girl who had no gift but a good heart or a big heart. I know, the painter answered. Could you share your gift with me? Not now, the sister responded with eyes on her palette. The king is coming, you know. The girl with no gift then remembered her other sister, the one with the song. She will help me, she said. When she arrived at her sister's house, she found a crowd of people waiting to listen to her sister sing. Sister, she called. Sister, I've come to listen and learn, but her sister couldn't hear. The noise of the applause was too loud. With a heavy heart, the girl turned and walked away. And then she remembered her other brother. She took a book with small words and big letters and went to see him. I have nothing to offer the king, she said. Could you teach me to read so I might show him my wisdom? 
The young sage-to-be didn't speak. He was lost in thought. The child with no gift spoke again. Could you help me? I have no talent. Go away, said the scholar, scarcely moving his eyes from the text. Can't you see I'm preparing myself for the coming of the king? And so the girl went away sadly. She had nothing to give. She returned to her place at the city gates and took up her task of caring for people's animals. After some days, a man in merchant's clothes came to the small town. Can you feed my donkey, he asked the girl. The orphan jumped to her feet and looked into the brown face of the one who had traveled far. His skin was leathery from the sun and his eyes were deep. His kind smile warmed the girl's heart. That I can, she answered eagerly, leading the animal to the trough. Trust him to me, and when you return, he will be groomed and fed. Tell me, she asked as the the donkey drank, have you come to stay? For only a little while. I'm looking for someone, he replied. Are you weary from your journey, she asked. That I am, he answered. Would you like to sit and rest? The girl motioned to a bench near the wall. The man sat on the bench, leaned against the wall, closed his eyes, and slept. After a few minutes, he awoke and found the girl sitting at his feet, watching his face. She was embarrassed that he had caught her staring. She turned away. Have you been sitting there long, he said? Yes, she replied. What do you seek, the man asked. Nothing. You seem to be a kind man with a peaceful heart. It's good to be near you, she said. The man smiled and stroked his beard. You are a wise girl, he said. When I return, we will visit more. The man did return quite soon. Did you find the ones you were seeking, the girl asked. I found them, but they were too busy for me, he replied. What do you mean, the girl replied. The first I came to to see was a woodsmith rushing to complete a project. He told me to return tomorrow. Another was an artist. I saw her sitting on a hillside, but the people below said she did not want to be disturbed. The other was a musician. I sat with the others and listened to her music, and when I asked to talk with her, she said she had no time. The other I sought had left. He had moved to the city to go to school. The girl's eyes widened as she realized who the man was. But you don't look like a king, she gasped. I try not to, he explained. Being the king can be lonely. People act strangely around me. They ask for favors. They try to impress me. They bring me all their complaints. But isn't that what a king is for, she get, the girl asked. Certainly, responded the king. But there are times when I just want to be with my people. There are times when I just want to talk with my people, to hear about their day, to laugh a bit, to cry some. There are times when I just want to be their father. Is that why you adopted the children, the girl asked. That's why. Adults think they have to impress me. Children don't. They just want to talk to me. They know that I love them just the way they are. But my brothers and sisters, were they, were they too busy, she asked. They were, but I'll come back. Maybe they'll have t- more time another day. The girl hesitated. Sir, what about me? I have no gift, but, but I would like to be your child. The king smiled. My dear, you gave the best gift of all. You gave your heart, your kindness, your time, your love. Of course you will be my child. I love you just the way you are. And so it happened that the children with many talents but no time missed the visit of the king, while the girl whose only gift was the gift of her heart became the child of the king. Would you go ahead and just close your eyes? I want you just to be undistracted and focusing in on what God is wanting you to hear today. God sent Jesus into the world to save us from our own sin, 
but also to demonstrate for you and I that his desire is to be with us. And what we've seen from the different stories in Scripture and even from what this story illustrates, that so many times we spend our lives creating a context of relationship with God that God never intended for us. And I don't know where you're at in your own journey of understanding who Jesus is or if maybe you've followed the Lord your entire life. But I know there are times and there are seasons when you and I have to come to a realization that we have defined the context of relationship with God in a way that actually separates us from Him. And this morning or today, I I want you and I to come to a place that as we go through this season called Christmas, that it isn't just the traditions and the things that we do each year, that that those, those things bring joy and those things are fun, but sometimes what happens is we miss what you and I should really understand about our lives and about Christmas. That God's love is so great that He demonstrated the ultimate act of love by choosing to be with us as human beings. And even when Jesus returned to the Father after his death and his resurrection, he sent his spirit to be with us so that someday when he returns and we follow him with our lives, we will once again be with him face to face. That's what drives God. That's what drives human history. That's what God's desire is. And so today I'm going to ask you that if there's one of these contexts or maybe couple of them that you know that you've been living in, that you've been living over or under or from or for God, and you've never yet really gotten to that place where you know that you're living with Him. I'm going to ask you today that you would be willing to surrender that, and that at the end what you're coming to is no longer are you treating God as a means to your end, but you're realizing He is the end. And if you have him, you have everything you're ever going to want or need in this life and in the life to come. And I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment. But also, if you're here and, and if you're going to be honest with yourself right now, that, that there is, there's never been that place where you know that you've really understood what God's desire is for you. Maybe you've acknowledged the reality of God. Maybe somebody dragged you here today because you came to see some really cute kids sing a couple songs. But there's no accident that God is wanting to speak to you about who he really is in your life. And that what he wants you to understand is his desire is that you would be with him and he would be with you. And the only way that that's possible is that Jesus' death allows the imperfections of your life to be removed so that you can be with God. That when we as human beings live our life, we sin. That's our nature. And the result is that sin separates us from God. We can't be with him. So when Jesus came, when he was born at Christmas, he also, in his life, he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin, rising to the dead, from the dead to break the power of death over us so that the, the distance between us and God disappears. The mound of sin between us and God disappears because of what Jesus did on the cross. And because of that truth, that means today you can make a decision, you can make a commitment as that rich young ruler had to come to grips with the one barrier that was between him and God was his money. And if he would surrender that, then he could see clear to do what Jesus really wanted was what? Come follow me. Jesus says that to you today. 
And you can do that. And the way you can do that is simply by turning your life over to him, by surrendering all of that sin and failure and all of your attempts to try to make your life what it's supposed to be and falling, you know that you failed in that. And because of that, God can bring forgiveness through Jesus and bring you to a relationship with him. But you have to be willing to surrender to that and surrender all those things so that you can choose to follow him. And you can start that by simply telling him. You can talk to him. It's called prayer. It's called communicating with God. And you can just begin to tell him that is your desire today. So, Lord Jesus, as we conclude our our time today, we thank you that you wanted us to know so profoundly your desire to be with us, that you were willing to be one of us so that we could be with you. It's the beautiful, beautiful reality of Christmas. And so I ask, Lord, as we move forward from here, help us in this season to not look at the reality of Christmas for the month of December, but, Lord, to embrace this bigger picture that your desire is to live uh, live with us and us with you, and that begins now, and then it becomes fulfilled in the, in the life to come. But, Lord, we know it starts here. So, Lord, whether we've embraced a different context that needs to be corrected or we for the first time are embracing a relationship with you lord i pray that you would solidify that in our hearts today so that moving forward from this moment we are different because our understanding of you is different we thank you jesus for your presence we thank you for your love and thank you for coming to be with us in your name amen